Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe issued a provincial white paper on Tuesday, this past Tuesday, and he declared the province will challenge Ottawa's, quote, continued interference in the province's jurisdiction over natural resources under the guise of federal environmental regulation. Saskatchewan is also, quote, drawing the line by taking a number of steps, including the introduction of provincial legislation to clarify and protect Saskatchewan's constitutional rights. Premier Moe has also stated he will work with Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, and I'm quoting again, to advance the priorities of Western Canada. Now, the uh, Premier of Alberta, the new Premier, Ms. Smith, Premier Smith, was on this program last Sunday, and she talked about uh, looking forward to working with Premier Moe. Premier Moe, thank you very much uh, for joining us. You certainly, uh, I think, have gotten the attention of Ottawa and the whole country with the white paper on Tuesday. You've sent a very direct message to Mr. Trudeau and the government. I just quoted a couple of lines, but in your words, what are you telling the federal government? Well, I think this is actually not about the federal government. Uh, this white paper really lays the foundation for unlocking Saskatchewan's potential to grow and uh, not only uh, economically, but to grow in our population and, and to ultimately uh, have growing and vibrant communities across across the province. And so uh, this is less about the federal government and more about what we know uh, we can achieve in this province and ensuring that we as a provincial government are uh, enabling or unlocking that potential uh, for Saskatchewan people to achieve. So if I look at um, a news story here, and it quotes you, I believe, um, following nine federal climate change policies and programs will cost this province, Saskatchewan, an average of $8.8 billion each year, more than half its current $17.6 billion provincial budget. The total by 2035 would be $111 billion. I, obviously, you can't absorb that. So uh, explain to us, please, how how are you going to move forward now to protect and constitutionally uh, take advantage, or I don't want to use take advantage, but use the constitutional levers that you have since 1930 as a province to protect both uh, energy and agriculture. Well, that's correct. First, on the amount, to put it in perspective, that's about the amount we uh, invest each and every year into health care and into the, the operations of our K-12 education system. And so it's, it's a tremendous amount that would be missing from uh, our economy uh, here here in Saskatchewan. And so it just simply uh, isn't on. Um, so what we are going to do as a province is we're going to look at uh, a number of different initiatives that uh, really will allow us to take the reins on on some of the things that the federal government does now. Honestly, Quebec has been doing this for a number of years. Uh, they, Quebec enjoys a, a broader um, a broader sense of, of uh, input on uh, the immigration uh, selection that they do. And we would be asking that. We already have asked for that uh, here in Saskatchewan. We're looking at uh, corporate tax collection provincially as opposed to federally. And yes, we are looking at legislation, and not outside the Constitution, but to really uh, clarify and to reassert uh, the provincial jurisdiction that the Constitution does give to, in this case, the province of Saskatchewan. Um, in particular, when it when it comes to the development of our of our natural resources, and so we'll have more to say on that when we get into the legislature and, and actually introduce this legislation. Um, but we we definitely are are heading that direction. So, if you were to uh, engage all of the levers that the environment minister. 
Minister Gilbo federally has uh, demanded and uh, which the Prime Minister has uh, supported, the damage to the Saskatchewan economy and way of life would be really significant by certainly, well, uh, 2035, that's the number, that's when you said it would cost the province $111 billion. Yeah, th- that's correct. And, and you're going to hear, you know, some folks, some academics will say, well, that's not the right number because there's some dollars that are returned. Well, first and foremost, it's the only economic forecast that has been done on on all of these policies. And, and I would put forward that we may be undershooting uh, a little bit. First, um, what we have seen uh, at the federal level is moving goalposts on, let's use the carbon tax policies in, as an example. There was a commitment made that it would be $50, never go above $50 until it went to $170. And so we see the goalposts moving in, in, in various policies. That is ultimately going to increase the cost. We, um, we, uh, in, in, um, in this province are going to grow. Uh, we are attracting investment. Some of it is being restricted to some degree, um, but we are continuing uh, to attract investment in this province. And then there's also indirect costs. Uh, Bill C-69 we didn't include because it's been deemed unconstitutional by the latest uh, uh, court ruling in Alberta at the Court of Appeal uh, there. Um, but when we are unable to provide a pipeline access for some of the cleanest uh, oil uh, on earth being produced in this province of Saskatchewan, uh, that oil goes on rails. It constricts grain. It constricts potash fertilizer. It constricts uh, constricts uh, timber products from going on those rails. All, again, the cleanest products are that you can find on earth. And uh, so the indirect cost of, of that, we don't know what that is. Uh, it's extremely large. And uh, so it may be well larger than $111 billion out to 2035. And and uh, nobody is arguing that there isn't a cost. And I would say it's most certainly we agree that it's significant. Premier, what do you make of the uh, Deputy Prime Minister and the Finance Minister's uh, Christian Freeland, speaking to a Washington think tank and saying Canada will fast track, because this would involve your province, I'm sure, Canada will fast track energy and mining projects our allies need to heat their homes and manufacture electric vehicles. What does this federal government talking about fast tracking energy and mining projects mean to you, Premier? The regulatory process is unendingly long. The only ally we have that we can effectively export oil and gas to is the United States, and that's because our pipeline infrastructure to tide water is woefully feeble. Has the prime minister or his environment minister or his energy minister or perhaps the deputy prime minister called you to express interest in fast-tracking energy and mining projects? And no, I haven't. I haven't received that call. call. And, and and great respect to uh, to the deputy prime minister, Christy Freeland, uh, for the, the work that she does. But uh, those words don't match with what the environment minister is doing, what the natural resource minister is doing, or what even the prime minister is doing. And and here's an example, and and not even relevant to to Saskatchewan directly. Um, we had uh, Olaf Schultz, the German chancellor, over here not not long ago. He was looking to secure a deal on LNG. We provided. Uh, uh, an MOU, I think, where we're going to provide hydrogen um, with a energy source that isn't built yet out of a, a plant that isn't built yet and science that is, is still uh, evolving but coming along uh, quickly and hydrogen uh it just, and I, I think we were going to deliver that potentially in five years if that's possible. Um, the chancellor then went to the United Emirates uh, after he visited Canada, and he secured an LNG deal with the United Arab Emirates. And so uh, we missed uh, uh, an opportunity there to help out Germany to provide them uh, with uh, some sustainable Canadian-produced uh, natural gas. And unfortunately, we weren't able to 
actually put the actions um, behind the words that our Deputy Prime Minister has said. It took you some time, Premier. I thought you were very patient over the years. It took you some time to get to where you are now. But that, uh, what I just read from the white paper, is very specific and very direct. You're concerned about the two key industries in your province being harmed by the dictates of Ottawa. We we are um, there. There's you know we we highlighted nine challenging policies that the federal government has, and and I you know I think we're losing sight of uh, and 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 we're changing you know our, our approach here in Saskatchewan as well, and to be less concerned really with the federal government. And as I said, this isn't about the federal government. This is about us in this province taking a, a leadership role as a government, as a people, to achieve uh, and attract the investment uh, that we have this past year, or the past decade, um, and that we know we can uh, into the future. In the energy industry, yes, um, we we have a, a great record, uh, and, and we're producing some of the most sustainable energy that we're very proud of, and we would hope that Canadians are very proud of what we're doing here in innovation and investment. The same for the mining industry um, and the agriculture industry and the forestry industry alongside of being sustainable, uh, working very hard on engaging uh, Indigenous people and Indigenous communities in the uh, not only the, the workforce, but uh, engaging them at a ownership level of the actual plants and the, the forestry communities and the, and, and, and the servicing communities of the mining industry. And so we have a you know a very sustainable industry. All sustain all of our industries here in Saskatchewan are very sustainable and continuing to become more sustainable and more ethical uh, in what they're doing. And they're, we're proud of them. Uh, we would hope that Canadians are are also equally proud of the of how we are producing our food, fuel, and fertilizer here in Saskatchewan, and and really get behind uh, as Canadians uh, providing this to to each other um, and providing it to North Americans as well to ensure that we have energy and food security across our our continent of North America. Premier, when I spoke with um, Daniel Smith, the Premier of Alberta, spoke with her last Sunday, a couple of days before she was sworn into office, but she spoke about looking forward to working with you, with, uh, with the province of Saskatchewan, and you're quoted as saying that you're looking forward to working with Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, quote, to advance the priorities of Western Canada. Can you expand on that a bit for us? Sure. Well, first and, and foremost, we work uh, quite closely with all uh, all provinces and, and the leadership uh, at the premier level or the ministerial level across the nation of Canada. And have a good working relationship, I would say, with, with all premiers, and that's one that I value and, and, and appreciate. And when it comes to uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta and, and even Manitoba and, and some of the interior of British Columbia as well, we, we do line up uh, with a number of similarities, uh, in particular in the industries that are creating wealth in our communities. And, you know, Alberta is uh, the... the the, the big oil producer uh, in Canada, and they're investing mightily in in advancing uh, the innovation that's making that uh, that product more sustainable each and every day. Like we are in Saskatchewan, we both have a large agricultural industry, uh, mining industries, and, and and our culture is very very close uh, across the Prairie provinces. And so we'll work with all premiers, but we we always uh, do have a, a certain affinity to and similarities really of. Uh, of uh, you know topics that we we do work closely with uh, province of Alberta, whether it was under Premier Kenny or now under Premier Smith, and I expect that uh, most certainly to continue. And we look forward to working with Premier Smith on advancing um, Western Canadian um, opportunities. Um, and I would say they're 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 actually Canadian opportunities. 
And they are Canadian opportunities, but there has been uh, the East-West Divide or the West-East Divide, which I don't need to uh, talk to you about. Um, but I do want to talk to you about the uh, the invoking of the Emergencies Act. The commission is hearing now. They started later than they could have, perhaps later than they should have, but they're underway. And uh, Saskatchewan government lawyer Mike Morris said to the commission, the call on February 14th from uh, the prime minister or the prime minister's office was not so much about consulting, it was about telling. And that was telling you the Emergencies Act was going to be invoked, not asking what you thought about it. Is that, is that a fair assessment of what, of what took place? That is a fair assessment, and uh, if it was a consultative call, uh, it likely wouldn't have went forward with the Emergency Act. And I, I won't speak for, uh, I'll allow premiers to speak for themselves from their respective jurisdiction, but uh, it was our view that it most certainly wasn't necessary. I would say that would be the majority view uh, by far on the call. The 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 border crossings at uh, Coots, at Emerson, and at the Windsor Bridge, uh, by the time the Emergency Act actually came into play, they had all been um, dismantled, um, and those folks had all left. Um, so the only the only uh, blockade or, or instance that the Emergency Act was used for was in downtown on uh, Ottawa, uh, the RCMP, the OPP, um, any of the other law enforcement agencies seem to have the tools that they required to uh, dismantle the the border crossings, uh, the border crossing blockades that, that were there. And so it was our view that they wouldn't need additional tool, tools like freezing bank accounts uh, across Canada, those types of things to dismantle uh, the, the blockade in, in Ottawa. We felt that the RCMP already had the tools and they should utilize the tools they had. The first time the Emergencies Act is invoked, and I spoke to a lawyer for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association earlier today, and I made this point to him, the first time the Act is invoked really sets, in some ways, the standard or the bar where future federal government might be uh, uh, feel empowered to invoke the Act again. And given the time and how it was invoked in February of this year, that would be concerning, would it not? would be uh, you know very concerning and we, we feel it was an overreach to uh, invoke the emergency act in particular um, when we we felt the law enforcement as we said had dismantled three of these uh, these blockades um, but for some reason uh, required the emergency act or were provided with the emergency act without being asked I guess is a better way to uh, frame it um, yeah it, it is concerning as uh, and it shouldn't be the precedent moving forward uh, the emergency act should be uh, just that and and I don't believe it was necessary in this case and I, I think it should be concerning for all Canadians moving forward. If I recall correctly, you and I, during the pandemic, were talking one day, and it was a news story, that the Prime Minister had considered invoking the Emergency Act during the pandemic. Do I remember that correctly? Yes, he had asked about it uh, earlier as well, at which uh, point in time I, I think it was Again, if not unanimous, uh, the vast majority were uh, under no circumstances. Is there a need for the uh, for the federal government to invoke the Emergency Act? We we did have the Emergency Act uh, provincially in place for a period of time here in Saskatchewan. Uh, it was essentially in place for uh, for one reason, and that was uh, just due to some collective bargaining um, nuances uh, that we had in order to uh, move uh, our, our healthcare staff into vaccination clinics, testing clinics, that sort of thing. We, uh, we we had to have the Emergency Act in place for that, and, and it's very specific uh, to that. And, and so we didn't y- utilize uh, the Emergency Act for anything beyond uh, ensuring that our, our clinics were operational. 
the Emergencies Act and the Commission hearings on the Emergencies Act. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association writes, in part, government had other options than the Emergencies Act and... The commissioner warns of timelines, time but government took maximum amount of time to appoint the commissioner. There's a lot being said. A lot will be said. There'll be many witnesses. There'll be contradictory testimony. And by February, we will have to have the report. That is the law. Alan Bartleman is a lawyer and special advisor to the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Mr. Bartleman, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. So the CCLA's greatest concern and opposition to the federal government's invoking of the EA, how do you most directly express what the association's concerns are? The most direct way to describe our concerns is that this was a overreach of power. It's a federal, a national law that was applied to deal with problems that were overwhelmingly local in nature. In other words, it was overkill. The um, We'll be talking later on today with Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan, and uh, Saskatchewan says they were never consulted. They received a call from the federal government with instructions, or at least they were told that the, uh, that the EA was going to be invoked. Is there concern about a lack of consultation with the provinces? Absolutely, absolutely. It's not only Saskatchewan, I believe Alberta uh, also said they received what they called a Valentine's uh, surprise or a delayed Valentine's surprise uh, with the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Uh, and I also understand as well that uh, a number of provincial police services were somewhat taken aback. We heard two days ago, of course, that the Ontario Provincial Police said they had all the legal powers necessary to contain and to address uh, the protests that were taking place. So it's not unfair to say that the deployment of the Emergencies Act, the decision to uh, to use the powers that that act provides for the federal government, was surprising. Yeah, not there just was also, houses, but also to others. There was also uh, um, testimony, or at least it was stated by the public safety minister, that uh, the cabinet acted and the prime minister acted on the advice of police. We then found out that that really wasn't the case, and the government uh, walked it back. But we have, as you said, the OPP stating that the Emergencies Act wasn't necessary. Meanwhile, though, the Ottawa Police Service lawyer described the presence of the convoy as an occupation and as being both dangerous and volatile, and the lawyer for the former Ottawa Chief of Police, Peter Slowly, suggested the uh, in, that the uh, occupation in Ottawa represented an unprecedented threat to national security. What's your response? Well, with respect to that position, namely that the Ottawa protests were a threat to national security, uh, we need to have that position justified. The Emergencies Act uh, requires that there be a threat to the security of Canada and that this threat be serious enough to constitute a national emergency. A localized protest, even if it can have serious impacts to the residents of Ottawa, which we understand and we acknowledge that this protest did, doesn't constitute necessarily a national emergency. Uh, to the to the integrity of Canada, to the lives and to the uh, to the security of, of Canadians across the country, and that's the key question. Yeah, and we know that the border closures or the border protests had evaporated by the time the Emergencies Act was invoked by the federal government. Certainly in Alberta, they had, and I believe also the uh, the, the bridge in uh, Windsor and Detroit, the Ambassador Bridge, that had also uh, basically evaporated. Yeah, that's exactly right. On February 11th, so a number of days before uh, the decision to invoke the state of emergency according to uh, to the Emergencies Act, 
Uh, Ontario declared its own state of emergency according to provincial laws and was able to clear the Ambassador Bridge, uh, that key border crossing between Canada and the United States, without reference to the federal government's emergency powers uh, and relying exclusively on local regional police services as well as its own provincial laws. So you have to question the need for an, a national act, this Emergencies Act, to be deployed uh, after the clearings at Coots and also at, uh, in Windsor, Ontario, mm-hmm. uh, to deal with protests that were really, again, localized to Ottawa. How specifically does the act define when it should be invoked? Well, again, you, you have that threshold about, uh, about the, the threat to the security of Canada and that the threat is serious enough to be a national emergency. So we have to show that the lives, the health or safety of Canadians has been seriously endangered uh, and that the provinces uh, and existing laws are incapable of dealing with that danger. These are really extraordinary powers that are granted. They're, they're sort of Independence Day, Hollywood blockbuster level threats to the country uh, that, that would suffice to trigger uh, the powers granted to the federal government under the Emergencies Act. Now, the Emergencies Act is the so-called parliamentary nuclear option. And I was just thinking that engaging it for the first time since the EA's inception in 1988, has to be significant as far as setting the conditions for any future EA invoking. Will the decisions taken by this government to invoke the Emergencies Act potentially impact on any future government's decision on when the act is in fact appropriate? Well, that's, uh, that's one of the key questions that is going to be lurking at the back of the inquiry that we're currently undergoing this, this public process. Uh, the results of the report, which is set to come out at, uh, at the end of February of next year of 2023, is really going to be absolutely vital in defining the contours of, of what's going to be appropriate and inappropriate when deciding to declare uh, or to proclaim a state of emergency according to the Emergencies Act. Certainly, it's not something that we want to be relying on. And as you pointed out, uh, there, is, uh, there, there has not been an invocation of the Emergencies Act uh, since it was uh, since it was brought into law in 1988 to replace the old War Measures Act, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association also has concerns and expressed them that the federal government took the full 60 days to appoint a commissioner for the Public Order Emergency Commission and lost two months of time for the commission to do its work. This has to play into into the uh, into the investigation into this whole commission's activities, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, certainly. It's uh, as you pointed out. This is the first time that the Emergencies Act was uh, was deployed. It's used. Its powers were put into uh, into effect, and the public has the right to a full inquiry, uh, a full, thorough, and comprehensive inquiry. And uh, as well, the the text of the law is very clear that the report has to be provided within 360 days of the end uh, of the revocation of the expiry of the emergency orders. So the, uh, the current inquiry has a very tight timeline uh, to provide a full report. And, and any day that's lost uh, within that 360-day period is, is going to, of course, weigh on the thoroughness of that report. So we are, of course, disappointed uh, that the government took the time that it did in order to appoint a uh, commissioner. What's your level of concern that the hearings will become an adversarial reality, which the commissioner has warned against? I don't see how that doesn't happen at some point. There is a certain level um, of of, uh, adversariality that is going to come about in this sort of process. Obviously, if we put ourselves back into the mind, uh, into the position that we were in February of uh, 2022, where we had, uh, we were in full uh, COVID-19, we had, of course, the lockdowns, the provincial lockdowns in place, as well as these very, very divisive protests 
Uh, and then the, the decision on the part of the government to deploy the powers of the Emergencies Act, an unprecedented decision, by its nature, this is an emotionally fraught topic. And, and of course, our hope is that the inquiry is going to be able to do its job, uh, get the appropriate level of support and assistance it can from the witnesses, review the documents, and do so in a way that's effective. Yeah, not only was this the first invocation of the uh, Emergencies Act, this is obviously the very first time there's been an inquiry into the invoking of the Emergencies Act. So this is setting precedent as well. What are you going to be looking for going forward? Well, there's a few things, one of which is the level of uh, cooperation of the witnesses. Obviously, we're very encouraged uh, to see the uh, the extent to which uh, the commission has been able to get uh, individuals from uh, really all levels of government uh, up and down, uh, as well as the volume of information that's going to be provided. Uh, one thing uh, to which we are uh, going to be drawing some attention and, and to which we have expressed concerns in the past is the claiming of privilege uh, over certain documents uh, used to inform the decision of cabinet in the lead up to the Declaration of the Emergencies Act. Uh, but we are quite um, we are quite uh, encouraged by uh, by the process as it's been unfolding. I always like to look at what Canadians are saying and how Canadians are responding to issues and questions that affect us all. And a new Maru poll for Yahoo Canada shows that 57% of Canadians are feeling the effects of rising interest rates. I actually thought the number might be higher, just as far as those of us who are feeling the effects of interest rates. 39% feel really anxious because of money pressures. The one that I said earlier really worries me or gets my attention. Um... 18% are worried sick over the impact of rising interest rates. John Wright is Executive Vice President of Maru, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show. John, thank you very much. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Always a pleasure to be with you, Roy. Yeah, we've been talking, you and I, for many, many years, and we've seen a lot come and go. And here we are in 2022 looking at how Canadians are feeling about the interest rates and inflation. It's all tied together. So more than half of us are feeling the pain of rising interest rates. Um, but let me go to the scariest information here first. Almost one in five are worried sick. Talk to us about that, please. Well, first of all, you and I do have some institutional knowledge of this sort of thing, having suffered through, uh, you know, a similar circumstance back in the early 1990s when, you know, uh, things were escalating very, very quickly on the interest rate side and other things dealing with the economy. And in fact, all the way back to the early 1980s when the McKechnie budget was brought in. And if you recall then, even Mark Lalonde had introduced the six and five program, which was to try and control price increases along with interest rates. So we've had it before. But we haven't had it within this generation. And we've got a group of people clearly who are um, went through the last couple of years, uh, many of whom went out and bought a home, um, highly leveraged, uh, variable uh, mortgages, um, people who are worried not only about the money that they owe and are now seeing the hikes going up and soon to come even more at the end of this month, but also are worried about their own businesses and where they work. So, You've got one in five people in this country confirmed in many polls that I've done who are usually in the lower income range. They are, you know, that 18 to 54 group. Um, they tend to be living more in Alberta, but it really is across the country in almost every area. And those are the people, in fact, that say that, you know, the rising interest rates are a significant problem for them right now. And it's really squeezing them because of the inflation and the interest rate escalation at the same time. 
Yeah. You know what's interesting? We were warned about interest rates for some considerable period of time. For a number of years, we were told, hey, uh, if interest rates go up one or two points, how's that going to affect you? And uh, people always said, well, it wouldn't be good. Uh, I have to do something about it. Well, here we are. But what I also found interesting in the poll, John, and please tell us about this, the percentage of Canadians who uh, prefer high interest rates to higher inflation and what we as Canadians want done as far as national debt is concerned. Well, I asked this a very stark choice, and it really is whether or not you prefer to have the high interest rates versus the um, ongoing elements of inflation. And we found that 69% would rather live with higher interest rates than with higher inflation. Now, you and I know that, you know, the, there are a whole bunch of other off-ramps, but that really is the choice that people are being given here. And I think, Roy, when you find 31% saying that they'd rather live with higher rates of inflation, it contains that group of people who are sick about, you know, where financially they could be pinched by the interest rate itself. I don't think anyone would argue with you that we heard about people, you know, about the bank rate and everything going up. I think what you're hearing from a whole group of Canadians is the escalation as quickly as it has happened. And we have, uh, you know, the head of the Bank of Canada, who again reiterated this week that come hell or high water, he's going to crush inflation down to 2%. By getting to that stage, it's going to take a lot of work, but probably leave a lot of people under desperate circumstances at the other end of the scale. Who are the 43% nationally who say rising interest rates are not a problem for themselves or their families? Well, there's two different kinds of people. First of all, the higher income folks who adding an extra couple of hundred dollars to something every month or more, you know, they, they clearly have got things in hand. And we find in the polling that we're doing that, in fact, of all of the measures that have actually upticked in the last 30 days, it is people putting more and more into savings, but they tend to be from that group. The second thing is not necessarily older people with variable pension rates and things like that, but people who, in fact, have got some leverage with their house, maybe a line of credit and other things who basically say, we're going to wait it out. So, you know, you've got people here who believe that they can, you know, hunker down and go through what is not interminable to them, but maybe, you know, into the spring of next year or, you know, the end of the fall, they can wait it out. And therefore, it's better that inflation be brought down, whereas you've got the other end of the scale who don't have those access elements at all in their lives that are feeling the pinch uh, uh, complete. I, I will just say this. You and I, if we go back 45 years or so, I remember when my dad would, would say that it was cheaper to get a credit card, use your credit card, than it was to get a bank loan. And that goes back to the 1970s. We're nowhere close to that, nor do I think we are. But it just shows that people are very sensitive to the swings that can happen, especially if you're over leverage. But there will always be a section of the population that takes this into account and and decides we're going to ride it out because there's no other way to do this. Where do demographics come in on these numbers? Well, the demographics are pretty straightforward. Um, Even though you have the high interest rate choice among all of the age ranges, you know, it's decidedly the older Canadians who who, who say that they'll, you know, ride it out. So 69% overall, but 77% of older Canadians leading that pack, followed by the middle age group and then the youngest at the end of the day you know it is going to be the young people who in that 18 to 34 year old group again lower income who are going to experience the most and particularly 34 is not a youngster they may have 
purchased a house. We know lots of people who decided they'd get into the business of owning a home with the help of their parents or others in the last number of months. They're suddenly going to feel it. And, you know, those extra two or three or four hundred dollars a month that they could be looking at, nothing like they're looking at in Britain where all of a sudden it's a thousand dollars extra a month. But those those amounts that can hurt people. And those are the people that that want to uh, not have uh, that visited upon them for very long. The Russian uh, missile assaults on Ukraine on Monday of this week were absolutely horrendous on civilian infrastructure. And uh, we have the G7 and NATO pledges that the defense of Ukraine would increase. More military weaponry was going to be directed, will be directed toward Ukraine. In the meantime, Vladimir Putin has said... And he said this yesterday, but further missile attacks of this magnitude are not necessary. Now, there is Western military speculation that Russia's army may be running short of weaponry, of missiles, of artillery and ammunition. And uh, let's talk about the damages that Ukraine suffered this week and whether I'm just wondering about this because it was raised in a previous conversation with my guest whether the Ukraine military, when and if it reaches the Russian border, may refuse to stop advancing if the Russians continue to so violently assault everything in Ukraine. Alexander Sherba is a former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria. He was also an ambassador at large in 2014. Alexander, thank you very much again for the time. You're so generous with your time to us. How do you describe, what was it like last Monday and as, as Putin unleashed this massive missile attack on Ukraine? Uh, hello, Roy. Thank you for having me. Well, it was, it was a scary day. It was a dark day. Uh, it was like um, hundreds of uh, missiles and uh, these Iranian drones were flying all over Ukraine and trying to destroy as much as possible. Sometimes, as it, as it appears randomly, sometimes they were really hitting the infrastructure um, objects. And uh, it was, uh, on the one side, a dark day, difficult day for Ukraine, but on the other side, it was another day of Ukrainian resilience. And also it showed how desperate Putin is, that he is losing this war and uh, he just has to show something uh, to his nation who just craves uh, Ukrainian blood because uh, uh, they have been so ecstatic about this war. And uh, all of a sudden, since July, there are no good good news whatsoever for them, only good news for Ukraine. And, and I suppose people are supposed to believe him when he says he just doesn't need to continue this level of attack. The, the wisdom from military planners is that he's running out of supplies. He's running out of military options. Would, do you believe that's the case? Well, with Putin, uh, it's, it's better always to assume the worst. Uh, so let's assume that he has enough uh, missiles uh, to uh, to make Ukraine, unfortunately, suffer furthermore. And therefore, we attach uh, immense hopes hopes uh, to these um, anti-air uh, defense systems uh, that were promised to us during the uh, meeting uh, of this Ramstein group. So we hope, we do hope that uh, uh, it will change the situation and we will finally receive what is necessary to defend our uh, uh, airspace. And that, that is air, uh, that is first uh, the um, 
uh, air defense systems and second uh, fighter jets even the old soviet ones it would would be that would be a start yeah the the the, uh, the air defense systems that you've been promised are very sophisticated and uh, they are known to do really what they're intended to do and that is bring down even the most um, highly designed fifth generation fighter planes what about the support from G7 and NATO? Are you confident that you're going to be getting what you need when you need it? Uh, well, I have a feeling, uh, maybe I'm wrong, uh, I, I have a feeling that the whole world saw uh, these uh, people in Kiev downtown uh, being killed uh, by missiles while they were commuting to their work. Uh, a doctor and, and a child, children's oncologists, uh, uh, all kinds of, you know, peaceful civilians, uh, the uh, children's um, uh, for playground was destroyed where uh, both of my children uh, grew up and it's the most popular place. It, it, if it was uh, half an hour later, it would be packed with children, it would be so much more damage. Right now there is this huge, you know, funnel in the middle of it. What's the point of it? It's, it's, it, it's, it's insane, you know, so... Um, uh, I hope that the world saw it and uh, the G7 countries saw it. Now we we say G8 countries because we think that Ukraine, uh, at least for the time of war, belongs to this group. Um, and I, I, I do hope, of course, that uh, uh, things will come faster. We just saw, I think yesterday, uh, President Biden announced yet another uh, batch of uh, military assistance uh, in amount of uh, uh, $750 million. Uh, but that is mostly the HIMARS and uh, the ammunition for HIMARS. Uh, so this is what we need right now. Uh, I hope uh, it will it will also include um, the air defense systems uh, pretty soon. Yeah, the HIMARS has really worked well for you. Been able to cut the Russian units off from their supplies and from their other units by uh, taking out bridges and other connecting roads behind them and leaving them exposed to the Ukraine military. And your military is still pushing forward and being very successful, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a little bit odd because we find out about the successes of our military from the Russian sources from these so-called military bloggers, uh, because on our side there is complete radio silence. Nobody reports anything. Um, and uh, as we understand, uh, our troops are uh, moving uh, towards Kherson in the south. Uh, recapturing, retaking, liberating Kherson would be a huge, maybe the biggest thing of this war, because this is the only uh, a large town uh, in Ukraine that Russia managed uh, to uh, to occupy. There are uh, 21 uh, so-called oblast centers, large towns in uh, in Ukraine, and only one of those Russia managed to, to occupy. So it would be tremendous, huge. It would be uh, uh, it would be a big victory. Yeah. Can you just uh, finally quickly tell me uh, how you expect fall and winter to uh, to be, what's it going to be like for Ukraine? Well, it will be tough. It will be extremely tough because even uh, without this massive uh, uh, missile strikes, every day uh, Putin destroys one or two, the so-called substations. Uh, uh, last night it was uh, in vicinity of Kiev. 
uh, that supply uh, the town, the, the city, and the oblast uh, with electricity. So uh, he's doing his devil's work, you know, but these people here are so tough, they're so resilient, they're so absolutely convinced in the victory that um, it's not going in the right direction for them. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 